you created man to work in the garden, to dress it and to keep it. And you've said that you would love to give us wisdom today to know how to do it better. We invite your presence, that you will inspire and motivate us and enlighten us as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to talk today about some relatively mundane nuts and bolts parts of, of uh, agriculture and uh, really about succession planting and the uh, propagation and transplanting and things that go along with that. And I try out this, this um, make sure that I knew how to use this. All right, so the first thing is, I'd like to start with just asking the question, what is the goal in farming? Well, the answer to that can probably be varied, but um, I read a book recently, it was written a while ago, called The Goal by, um, by a business author, and uh, it really, I think, clarified with me uh, what that goal is, but it can be different for different people. But I'd like to read the statement here from Education 262. It says, success in what? Any line. Now you think that's pretty broad when God says any line. He's an infinite God. So success in any line demands a definite aim. All right? An aim is somewhat synonymous with a goal. You have to have something that you are targeting, a direction that you're going, a goal that you have. And for me, I think particularly if you're trying to do something as a means of support, uh, if it's a business venture, the, uh, this paragraph has been a motivating paragraph for me. It says, farming has been pronounced what? Unprofitable. Unprofitable. Now, I would like to put a caveat here at the beginning that profit is not necessarily cash in the bank. And I say that not from a business standpoint, but if you are a, a, uh, a home gardener, you can have a profitable operation even if you are having to invest cash into your garden. Because for you as a home gardener, your objective may not necessarily be a surplus of income over expenses, your profit might be the development of character for your children, for example. It might be better quality food. There are different things. And I would also like to say that for schools, I believe that there should be a, a, um, a different standard of profit. For a school to profit from the farm does not necessarily mean that they have to have a surplus of income over expenses. There needs to be a clear understanding that the purpose of education is not to make money on the students, on the educational process. We need to have agriculture in schools because God says it's the only way that we can be successful in educating our young people. In fact, I have a statement that I read that was very profound to me where she says that work, particularly in agriculture, is a necessary step to resist temptation. 
and uh, there's, there's different things. But for me as a commercial farmer, uh, it says farming has been pronounced unprofitable. That the labor that you put into farming does not give you enough return to really justify it. And that's why so many people steer clear of that as a vocation. But she says, should persons of profitability take hold of this line of employment and make a study of the soil and learn how to plant, cultivate, and gather in the harvest, what does it say? More encouraging results might be seen. So I would like to say that for me, the goal is a profitable farm. So to reach that goal uh, for uh, the approach that we've been taking is summarized in this little statement, every square foot every day. Every square foot that you have in your farm or garden costs capital, input such as labor, fertilizer, seeds, and then your overhead, and obviously I'm, I'm uh, oversimplifying the costs, but um, it also, every square foot can grow stuff, that stuff that has value. Now, I'd like to, just for illustration to make my point, if you take a map of your farm or garden and you were to overlay it with a grid, square foot grid, every expense in your operation is divided into those square feet. The purchase of the land, the, uh, the insurance on your property, uh, everything can be divided out over those square feet. And therefore, um, I would like to look at, we don't use square foot gardening and yet I think in terms of square feet gardening, okay? So in our operation, we have established um, spacing protocols for every crop that we grow and uh, here's a, here's a uh, not an exhaustive list, but this is a list of some of the things that we do. We grow several crops that are not particularly well-known crops, such as kohlrabi and komatsuna. And um, I'd like to put a plug in for some of these less well-known things. Uh, we started selling to our customers kohlrabi, and people are like, what in the world do you do with this thing? What is it? How many here know what kohlrabi is? Okay, most of you, all right? So we started sending recipes in our, we, we have, it's not really a CSA, but it's kind of sort of related to that. It's a highly modified CSA, where it's really more like an online store. There's no prepay. You go on there and uh, go through our web store and find what you want to order and uh, place the order, and then we deliver the box of produce. So in a way, it's kind of like a, a CSA, but it's much more flexible. So we started including recipes for kohlrabi and uh, making kohlrabi french fries, for example. And people just loved it. It's quite amazing, actually. It's a wonderful vegetable. So we take these spacings, and I want to show you here, if you do the math, using those spacings, we can get three beets in every square foot. And if you look at those things there, 20 carrots and two and a quarter romaine, four salanova. How many of you are familiar with a salanova lettuce? Okay, it's an amazing lettuce. The best one out there, I think. 
one cut and it turns into a salad and it's got a really terrific flavor. So you can see those things there and I put tomatoes there because just as an example of something that actually takes up more than a square foot, so three square feet per plant kind of spacing. So I put a third of a square foot, I'm mean a third of a tomato per square foot because it takes three square feet. So those are some representative plants. Now at retail pricing in Arizona, I got these prices off the, off the stores. Okay, that means that, that the revenue we would get per square foot at retail pricing would give you, for example, $2.69 a square foot for beets, $4 a square foot for carrots, $4.50 for romaine, etc. And you can see down there, now these are greenhouse, more greenhouse figures, $13 out of tomatoes, and, uh, and so on. Now, if you looked at that, what, what um, crops would you choose to grow? You grow tomatoes, right? All right? Now, I want to keep in mind, why are we talking about this? I'm, I'm trying to help you to understand, from my perspective, why succession planting is really valuable. Okay? So this is part of wanting to give you an understanding of, of our our um, modus operandi on our farm. And um, now, if you take those figures right there and you divide them by the number of weeks that that plant is in the ground, this is what you get. Okay? Look at tomatoes. Not so favorable for tomatoes because the tomatoes have to be in the ground essentially a whole growing season. So you got a lot of money out of that square foot, but if you look at it by how many weeks it's there, that changes the picture. And if you look before, uh, carrots, you got more revenue off of a square foot of carrots than off of a square foot of beets, but when you factor in the number of weeks it's in the ground, the beets do better than the carrots, okay? So there's several factors that come to play in determining some of these some of these things about how you do things, uh, particularly in relation to succession plantings, and one of them is, of course, the length of time that it's in the ground, and number two is day length, and number three is temperature. We'll get to, to that in a bit. Okay, now, you can see here the impact of, of day length and temperature in the, in the uh, on this table, at the top, you see the crop down here, weeks after last crop, etc., etc. Now over here, the short weeks to harvest and the long weeks to harvest and the average weeks to harvest. That is the length of time that um, uh, it's going to take to harvest at the shortest time of the year. That's midsummer, June, July, particular, um, and then the long weeks is the length of time that it's going to take in the early spring or in the late fall when the temperatures are cooler, the day lengths are shorter. And uh, you can see that between the shortest and the longest, it's about 50%, and that's a good rule of thumb. 50%, we, get, we grow year-round. We harvest from our farm 52 weeks a year, which is just really, really nice because um, um, it means that we can have much more uh, consistent systems. Yes? I do not have the slides on the website. 
I uh, was going to actually make them in uh, printouts. I actually have this page here, the complete, and this is an excerpt from it. I had the complete one actually printed out, but I didn't get it over here in time to get made into handouts. But uh, we could put it up on the website. My daughter tells me that. She does more with the website than I do. I do nothing. But uh, um, in case you think that I live in San Diego or anything like it, I don't. Um, we live where temperatures can get down in the single digits. But because the, the light levels are high in the mountains of Arizona, we can grow in protected uh, high tunnels, etc. And we found that from our own trial that... Uh, Right. We do, we do uh, my wife wanted to make sure that I pointed out that we do a lot of high tunnel stuff that's not, that's not heated. Um, anyway, we've, we've discovered the same thing. It's about 50% difference between the shortest and the longest. Now, if you look there, look at the, um, if you look here at this, these numbers here, and then you look over in this last column to the right, you see weeks from transplant to harvest. You see the difference between, um, it can be anywhere from, anywhere from 30% to double that it takes longer to grow from direct seed than it is from, um, from transplant. And that's the, that to me is a really key thing. If you want to get, if you want to maximize your, your productivity you do more transplanting and less direct seeding. A couple of crops you can't do that, like carrots and radishes aren't worth doing that. The benefits of succession planting. Now there's a couple here that, that we don't normally think of. It's pretty easy to see that you can have a consistent supply of product for sale, and that's really important. Okay? Um, then, maybe not quite as obvious, the opportunity to more easily adjust production as the market changes. If you are, um, most farmers do some form of succession planting. What I'm talking about is tweaking what a lot of farmers do, and, and I'm sure there's many that do what I do, but I'm talking about, about actually systematizing a weekly process where you go every week you seed, every week you transplant, every week you harvest. So we'll get more to that. But when you're doing that on a weekly basis, as market forces change, market opportunities develop, etc., you can, you can adjust for that much more easily. And, uh, and then this one here, I think, is also fairly obvious, although you might not think about it. You're less exposed to risk. If you're putting in a crop every week, if uh, something bad happens, and something bad will happen you have less exposure. You're not like, I'm out my entire crop for the rest of the year kind of thing or for the next several months because there's more in the pipeline, hopefully. And uh, then this one here, I'm, gonna, I'm going to, I'm going to um, come back to that one and go to the last one. The opportunity to, fend the, to extend the season further. If you're seeding every week, you just keep doing that and you see how far you can go. And uh, what we do is we take the um, low tunnels and with certain frost-tolerant crops, we can extend them quite a bit. In fact, last year, even though the temperatures get down in the single digits, we can run carrots 
we were able to harvest carrots outdoors under low tunnels um, all winter long. Was, uh, they stopped growing but for a couple months in the, in the worst time, but they did, they did continue. So you can, you can push your crop out when you're doing it this way, and uh, you can afford more risk because it's a small amount you're exposed. Every week you're planting a little bit, and at some point in time, that crop isn't going to make it. But, uh, or it isn't going to be cost effective to leave in there. But, but you have a relatively small exposure to that while allowing you to extend your, extend your season. Now I'd like to emphasize this one here. Um, the biggest problem... Let me restate that more accurately. A very large problem that most people don't think of when they think about profitable farming is we tend to look at market. Can't sell my stuff at the price I need to get. That's a big problem. Okay? We tend to think about pests and diseases. I have, and weather. You know, I was doing great, but, but you know, the bugs came and ate up my my crop and we we've had like this year for years we've never been without a bunch of kale to sell and basically as much kale as our customers want year round and this year the harlequin bugs and they're a new introduced pest from China one of their also exports that uh, has been over here for relatively few years um, they are devastating to kale and other cruciferous vegetables, but particularly kale. Their, um, their saliva appears to have a toxin in it because from where they chew on the plant, from that part forward, the leaf dies. And so it's not just that they chew on the leaf. Our customers would probably tolerate some of that, but they aren't going to tolerate dead leaves. So I went out there and, and uh, worked very diligently and uh, finally hoisted the white flag and said, we're done with kale outside in the summertime. The harlequin bugs are too bad. So you have those kind of problems. We understand that. We accept that. But that's not usually the fundamental problem in profitability in a farm. It's this one right here. It's the lack of systems that, that, prevents, that prevents efficiency. Um, I'm going to, to um, there's a book by this title, Fail Fast and Fail Often. And uh, we all laugh at that, right? There's a, an art teacher who decided to do an experiment in his, one of his classes. He took the class and divided it in the middle and he put on the one side of the class, he said, you guys are going to make pottery. And uh, the other side of the class, he moved him over to the left side of the building, he said, you're going to make pottery too. And he said, to the ones on the right, he said, I'm going to grade you on the basis of quality. The best piece of pottery that you can make is going to determine your grade. To those on the other side of the room, he said, your grade is going to be entirely based on quantity. The number of pieces that you make in the course of this year is going to determine your grade. So if you make 40 pieces or 400 pieces or whatever the number is, you're going to get an A. It doesn't matter what they look like, just how many you can make. 
At the end of the year, who made the best quality pottery? The quantity people. Why? Because they weren't caring about how well they were making it, but they were making so many pieces of pottery, they had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to make a bowl and make a mistake with it. And they developed their art. And by the time they were through with that class, they had developed the skill to make fantastic pottery. The other people were focused on trying to make this perfect piece, and they made very few pieces, and they never really advanced their skill. You see, in gardening, we tend to overlook that. We get hung up on a lot of different things, and the fact is, it's important to fail often and fail fast. Because once you have learned the things that don't work, the next time you put the plant in, you know how to do it better, right? One of the advantages of succession planting is it gives you the opportunity to fail often and fail fast. Because if you think about it, if you grow one crop of potatoes for a year, if it takes 10 crops to learn how to grow potatoes well in your area, how many years is that going to take? 10 years. If you're growing potatoes and you put in five or six crops a year or more, how many years does it take you to get good? Two years. But not only that, when you do it once a year, you forget a lot of the things that you did the last year. When you're doing it one right after the other, right after the other, you remember those things. And so it doesn't take you 10 crops to learn. It actually probably takes you seven or eight. So you can get that process done way faster when you are, when you are doing succession planting. So the, to recap those last two points, because I think they're really significant, the thing that's really important is that you have a system. And when you do a crop, the same thing, your week looks the same every week, the opportunity to put in place systems that make it so that you get more done with less time, which really, to a large degree, determines profitability, then you can do that better with a systematic operation. And um, I'd like to show you our week. This is, this is kind of a, um, uh, an oversimplification for sure. But um, um, this, this, these activities are routine every week. Now, I would like to just put in here, our farm is probably much more diverse than it should be. We have wholesale. We have retail. We grow, we grow stuff in greenhouses. We grow stuff outside of greenhouses, etc. So... So uh, the part of our operation that deals with, we call it our intensive division because they're the things that you would normally grow in the field like beets and carrots and kohlrabi and lettuce and so on that you'd normally grow in the field, but we grow them in, in intensive, kind of like square foot type, type uh, systems. And so that is a department in our business, on our farm, and uh, there's a little bit of stuff that we do with crop maintenance on Sunday morning. We seed, as you can see, on Friday. And we choose Friday so that we don't have to worry about that stuff coming, needing to be taken out of the germinating chamber on Sabbath. So, so on Sunday, we've got to take some of that stuff out, put it on the tables uh, to grow up. And uh, we have some, some uh, watering and so on to do. But primarily, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, we harvest for shipment. And uh, Wednesday, we do things like weeding in the beds 
and uh, transplanting. And then on Friday, we do seeding and transplanting. So we have a system that's the same. People are doing the same thing every week, and it works out a lot better. Now, as a part of the uh, succession planting, to me, it's kind of a holistic package. Um, I'm, I'm very fond of raised beds, and uh, I call these box beds because there's more than one kind of raised bed. You can make a raised bed with, with a tractor and a, and a bed shaper, and you can do it with a shovel or any other thing too. But I like the box beds because it's more efficient use of space, in particular when you're in greenhouses where, where that space is more expensive and more limited, then uh, it lets you, lets you plant right up to the edge and, and be more, more effective. Um, the other thing that I like about box beds is that I can determine what I grow in. And we make our own, we fill those beds, those are two by sixes, and uh, we make our own media to grow in. And I have tried over and over over the years, many different times, and I have always found that my plants grow better, grow faster, grow healthier, when I grow in a high organic matter substrate. And so we make a high organic substrate because our plants like it. And uh, it also makes root crops like beets and carrots. I mean, uh, it, takes, it takes about five minutes to wash 50 bunches of beets, and I don't think it even takes that long. But I mean, it's, there's nothing sticks to it. When you're growing in a high organic matter thing, they, they wash off so fast and uh, so clean. And so... Um, and, of course, being a more friable media, uh, things like carrots penetrate well. So I'm a fond, of, fond of doing that kind of thing. But I know that other people, you know, every farmer kind of has his own philosophies, and that's great. But we do in, in box beds. And, um, and just to, to uh, give you the prep for the next point of succession planting, you see how the bed is here. Uh, we have the first maybe 10 feet that you can see here. With, um, with a teenage level of plant. And then behind it, you see those that are more mature and just about ready to harvest. And uh, this up close, you see they're all in uh, little squares. Um, what we do in succession planting, and we're kind of simplistic, and so I'm not going to say that this is the best way to do it, but it's the best way that we found. Um, I would probably prefer doing it a little differently if I was doing the volume, but we take, for example, a 100-foot bed that's four feet wide. That's kind of our standard bed, and we break it up into, like, say, 10-foot lengths. So on week one, we would put in, um, we would put transplants in uh, that first 10-foot section, and the next week, and so on, and as you can see, the plants behind it are continuing to grow up. And, and if it's a crop that takes four weeks, by the time you've done that sequence, then you're ready to go and harvest the first ones. And if it's uh, one that takes six weeks, you know, so on, you have, a, you have a longer section of your bed, but you have a consistent cycle. You're harvesting that entire section when it comes time to harvest it, and then you go in a couple days later, the next day preferably, and go in and put new plants in so you're keeping stuff growing in that bed all the time, every square foot, every day. Okay, now, then uh, very integral to, to uh, succession planting is propagation. 
Um, but before I go there, are there any questions that are fresh in your mind about succession plannings that I didn't explain because I just assumed? Yes. Yes, we do. Uh, the question is, um, you, I showed here, going back here, I showed here how we take our, our bed and break it up into sections, and I used 10 feet as an example. Um, we, <coughs> we, we like a 10-foot section, although um, some crops we might do a whole bed of and actually have you know, maybe several beds that are in, uh, in rotation because it's a, a higher volume crop. But um, the question is, I showed how we would do one, two, three, four, etc., and then come back and do those again. The question was, what about crop rotation? Do we rotate our crops? In a functional way, we do. We move around from one bed to another, so we're not growing. We try to avoid growing the same thing in the same bed all the time. But there, when you're talking about rotations, I want to point out that typically rotations happen on a yearly basis not on a crop basis. So you don't need to, you don't need to sweat about, um, you know, because we're doing, in, in what I'm talking about here, because you're doing a transplant, that is in the ground for, at most, probably six or seven weeks. So, so there's a, a relatively short time that that plant is in there. And we have found, generally speaking, very, very little disease problem, root disease problems when we're growing organically. When we were hydroponic, we had to worry about root disease as something fierce. But um, when, you're doing the, when you're doing organic production, and, uh, and uh, this afternoon, I guess it is, I'm talking about why we do veganic growing. And, um, and our experience with that, but I'll say that the biology in the soil is such that pathogens are really suppressed. And most people are not aware of the fact that earthworms don't eat soil. They only appear to eat soil, okay? They do put it in their mouth and swallow it, but that is so, in that sense, they're eating soil. But the reality is the bacteria are digesting the organic matter in the soil and they're actually eating the bacteria. That's actually what's giving them their nourishment. And so, so the, the um, important thing in, in the soil is that you have enough decomposing carbon to feed a very prolific microbial population because those saprophytic uh, organisms, saprophytic means basically plant eating, you know, plant digesting uh, bacteria suppress pathogenic bacteria. So if you have an abundance of those, you're going to have a lot less of the, uh, of the disease problems. And, um, and so what we try to do is to rotate, you know, kind of as it works on a, like for sure by a yearly basis, but oftentimes we move around within the year. And, um, and sometimes my wife would like me to say that, um, I never my wife would like me to say that she can never keep track of where anything is because we're moving around so much. Um, and, and that is true, but not everything. And that's why I'm saying on a, on a uh, specific basis, we rotate at least on a yearly basis. 
Um, yes. You mentioned that your soil mix was heavily organic. What's the dominant material that you're using? Okay. No, I am not fond of sawdust. Um, we, we started with sawdust, and um, what I found, and I'm going to get to that specifically a little later when I talk about the media in propagation, which is going to be in just a few minutes, but I'll say this because it is relevant, and I wasn't planning on covering that later anyway, and that is that, that organic matter provides its benefit during decomposition. So, so um, the end result of decomposition is humus, which is a colloidal substance. Now, put that in, tuck that behind your ear. It's a colloidal substance. And, uh, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. But I'll say this, that colloids are particles that are so small, they'll actually stay in suspension in water. And because of that, you don't get a good air-water um, ratio. So I like to use material that breaks down slowly enough when possible that I don't have to worry about that. Now, in our case, we're blessed by being close to some huge pecan-growing operations, and so I get to use pecan shell, which has such a high lignin composition that it breaks down very slowly, years and years before it loses its, its um, granular texture. So if you are going to use wood-based products, you have to remember, number one, that they break down quite rapidly. They have a very high carbon-nitrogen ratio, so they suck up nitrogen for a long time. And... Uh, and then they break down relatively quickly to such a fine particle that you have issues with drainage and with air in there. And one of the things that happens that we learn the hard way is that you can think you have nutritional problems and it's not nutrition at all. There's plenty of nutrition there, but the plants are showing nutritional symptoms because the roots don't have enough oxygen to, to actually actively take up the nutrients that you need. So you show particularly things like, like um, the trace minerals like manganese and, and iron are very, very susceptible to oxygen-derived um, deficiencies. Um, so, but we'll cover that a little bit more. Was, uh, did I see another question? Yes. I'll, um, no, so I'll do it now since you asked about it. Um, we... We have tried a lot of different things. In fact, when we make our raised beds, and we would usually make um, probably 10 or 15 a year just to keep expanding our, our uh, farming operation. And um, we, we, do, um, we do all of the waste products from our operation. That's tomatoes that don't grade out to the to sale. And uh, and my wife and daughter have been very clever at coming up with ways of selling all kinds of things that, that don't qualify as number one produce and actually selling them for more money than if they were number ones. And um, like, you know, the tomatoes that are a little tiny on the cluster tomatoes are supposed to be nice and big and connected to the vine. Okay, so we sell them for a certain price. Well, then there's the little ones that fell off or were too small to sell. And so 
um, she called them mini toms and packaged them up and sold them for more money. So you can do, and then, right, there's a small market for that. Um, then we made our own brand of salsa, and we send we send tomatoes to that that we don't necessarily have to be sellable at all, as long as it's a good, clean quality, you know, no no rot or decay or anything like that. Um, then we send it to the to the company that's doing the uh, the packing for us to make our salsa. So you can do some of those things, but the stuff that doesn't make it. And all the leaves, we, we clip about 30,000 leaves a week off of our tomatoes. And, uh, you know, and we take the, the um, we grow microgreens. And so that's a, a, a cotton abandoned kind of crop. So you cut them off and then you throw the media away. Uh, and so all of that stuff ends up in, uh, in windrows composting. And after... And after six or 12 months or whenever we need it, we go in there and, and use that as one of the constituents, the compost from our waste product as a constituent in our, um, in our beds. We also make a, a very high composition of our, of our pecan shell. And, um, and we add probably about 15% native soil, which in our case is um, a clay loam. Um, but we, we try to put a a, um, a reasonable percentage, probably 20% or more, of sand. And the reason for that is that, um, um, we'll get to in a minute, there's a reason for that, so just remember that. Um, and I'll get to that. So we do, we do um, um, propagation and... Um, I should say here that we do, we, we grow on two and a half acres. That's it. No, I've done the math. My wife keeps saying it's more than that. And that's because, yes, there's, there's roads and walkways, and we're not very, like, where we actually grow our stuff, we'll have a little field where we grow our stuff, okay? Then, then there might be a lot of space around there before we have another little field. But when you look at what we actually grow, counting the walkways in between the beds, we have two and a half acres. One acre of that is what we call our intensive stuff. And then there's about an acre and a half that is other greenhouse high tunnel type crops. Um, and um, out of that two and a half acres, we, we get um, about pretty close to a half a million pounds of, of produce a year off of that. And um, um, so it's a intensive growing can get you a lot of product off a pretty small space. And to me, the the um, propagation is and, and transplanting is integral to our system because. You, you cut that time down by 30 to 50% from seed to harvest. So you get double the return or 50% you know, more return um, on each square foot that you're growing. Did you have a question? Yes. Um, a typical, I just come across and threw it away, one of the, um, the blends that, that we had made up. We would probably look at something like 
close to 40% or 50% uh, pecan. Preferably, in our case, we compost the pecan shell. And I have some here. I'll be showing it in a little bit. Um, we, we grind it up in a hammer mill and, um, and add um, some plant-based fertilizer to it. We've done a number of different types and compost it for four to six weeks. And then we can do that. But we have used, generally in our beds, we just use the whole pecan shell. Now, have to be careful with things like walnuts because they, they, are, um, they have allelopathic properties to them. But generally speaking, um, in our case, we, we found that works. Um, in, every, in every region, you can find something that, 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 that you can use as that primary constituent. But depending on the properties, if you're going to have to use a, a, like a forest product type or a leaf type uh, compost, you're going to probably be well to increase your sand a little bit. And, um, and we'll get to that in a minute. So we would probably use something like, like um, 40% pecan shell and uh, maybe 20% sand and 15% um, other compost. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we try to, we use multiple types of compost, so it ends up being probably about 80% um, organic matter and 20% sand when, when the thing is all done. Or, or um, if we put in, as we've been doing more now, putting in 10 to 15% native soil, we might be as high as 25 or 30% mineral and the balance organic. And again, there's nothing, there's nothing rocket science about that. Every farmer can decide what works for him based on philosophy or available resources. Like I said, we have, we have tried for years. I've been growing for over 30 years. And, and repeatedly, I have seen that high organic matter substrates do really well for growing. And I'm not going to say that they do better then because because that would put me into some very controversial ground, and, uh, and I wouldn't want to argue with anybody over that. It's just what we have found that works for me. And when I look at the holistic picture of remembering at the very beginning, I said what the goal was. The goal is profitability, not for, for if you're in a commercial operation, not necessarily ideology. And I want to be very careful with that because I'm not saying that a person isn't ideologically driven. But you have to make sure that your ideology does not get in the way of profitability or you won't be able to be ideological at all. We, we have um, removed, we've removed product from our beds basically um, on two different occasions. Once because when we were early in our operation... Um, we didn't know that a material that we had sprayed in the greenhouse was not certified organic. So we had to pull the stuff out of the, yeah, before we were certified. So we had to go and pull the stuff out that we'd put in the bed and replace it in order to meet the, the requirements of our certifying agency. The, the second thing that we've done is that after, after about four or five years, we did not set up our greenhouse the way that, that it should be because of several circumstances, including ignorance. Um, so we've tried to go back and redo the beds and do them right. So we've replaced the media in the beds at that point after like four years. 
but it wasn't because they weren't growing well, but just because we wanted to redo the bed. So, so we have found that we can add um, over time, the, the material in the bed will settle down as it breaks down, and we go back and just add um, more material. And, and uh, we have found that, that uh, as we've been going through this learning process, we ended up with, with a bed that had too much sand. So then we would go back and add more organic matter or, or vice versa. So you can add pretty easily to it. It only takes... A, uh, a few hours to do a, to redo a bed to fill it up and to change the composition to make it more suitable. But we have not yet, some of our beds we've been growing for the entire time we've been organic, which is uh, eight, coming up eight years, and uh, haven't changed them, and they're still doing great. Um, so I was very worried about that when we started, but it has not proven to be a, um, a significant issue. And because of the way that we are uh, fertilizing, etc. We um, we have a lot of of um, creatures like earthworms and so on in the beds that tend to create uh, a, a good aeration, even though the material itself is broken down more than I would like. Okay. Um, before we get into the into the propagation, uh, let's just pause here. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.